Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today is the first research roundup with our CSO, Brandon Roberts. Dr. Brandon Roberts is the Tailored Coaching Method Chief Science Officer. He is an experienced coach, he's an experienced athlete, and he is an experienced researcher. So today we brought up three specific studies um, pertaining to training, nutrition, and supplementation that he also wrote a research roundup blog on that we're working on. It's really big, and that'll be out in a couple weeks, so stay tuned for that. But today we covered the studies in a little bit more of a casual conversation between the two of us, went into the studies, and then we talked about how those studies actually apply to the coaching clients we work with. The first study was regarding the diet breaks and refeeds with Bill Campbell, which you will hear an episode with me actually interviewing Bill here in the next week or two as well. But we we did a little research roundup on that. Then we went into BCAs and if they have any validity, there was a study that showed a greater VO2 max um, in performance by supplementing with BCAs prior. But when is that really applicable? We're going to dive into that and if they're even worth spending your money on. And then the third one was regarding energy expenditure adaptations and what we can expect from that, which led us to a conversation about the best way to lose weight. Is that cardio? Is it dieting? Is it strength training? So we took a little bit of a side rant on that one, but I think it's really applicable to most of the people listening to the podcast. All right, guys, I'm excited for this one. This is going to be a cool thing that we do every single month. Um, We're going to do this uh, research roundup. We're going to pick a few studies, and we're going to go through them every single time. So if you enjoy this podcast, please do us a huge favor and let us know by taking a screenshot of this episode. Post it on your Instagram story. Tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag Brandon at BRob underscore 21. We want to thank you for listening, and we want to share it on our story as well. Without any further ado, let's head over and talk to our CSO, Dr. Brandon Roberts. All right. So today is our first, uh, we can call this the, uh, the Brandon takeover. This is going to be the first time where our CSO, Brandon Roberts, gets to step in, kind of take over the show. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to literally just use this as a chance to selfishly learn from you um, and kind of listen to you go over these studies, which will be available in a blog soon. So you guys will be able to get this in writing as well um, soon so you can see the actual text of what he put together. But we're going to go over three specific studies that are applicable to our audience and our clientele. Um, and Brandon's going to kind of step on and he's going to give us his interpretation in the actual study. And then we'll be able to kind of pick it apart and, and apply to what you guys can take away with. Essentially, that's the, the whole goal of these. And we'll be doing these every month. Um, so Brandon, I'm gonna let you take it away and, and get into it, man. All right. Well, so first up, we're, so we're gonna do three studies. Uh, as some of you may have heard of the, uh, the refeed study out of the Bill Campbell's lab. Um, and I think you had him on or are going to have him on, right? Yeah, we recorded, I don't know if it'll air before this or not. So people may have heard it or they have not heard it yet. So this will be a yeah. chance for them to hear a second opinion. And just remember guys, like, uh, every single study ever done always is going to have critiques and, and I've already actually read multiple interpretations of it. And then I got a chance to, he emailed me 
the study and I read it my own and then I talked to him on the podcast. So I've kind of been hearing everybody's uh, opinions. And as a coach, I actually find it more valuable by hearing all the different interpretations and allowing myself to dissect what is applicable out of the study, right? And like not taking anything for uh, written in stone words, but just knowing what people hear and, and interpret it and then using that, I think is really valuable. Yeah, so, so I'll just kind of give the, the outline. Basically, um, it's a seven week study where they had one group do refeeds on essentially the weekends um, where they came back up to maintenance calories. And then the other group was just strict dieting. Um, so it worked out to where the deficit was basically 25% for the continuous group, what they call it, and then 35% during the week for the refeed group. And then they read that on the weekends, obviously. Uh, they did training, which was really cool because, I mean, this is something that, while the deficits are, deficits are pretty steep, like 25% deficit, as I wrote, is you know, is a lot of calories. Um, it's something that we use in practice. And um, they're not obese, you know, they don't have disease, they are training similar to what we would train like. So that from the translational aspect, you know, their protein's high, it's at 1.8 grams per kilogram. So it, it checks all the boxes um, of population relevance. So the next thing they go into is they wanted to know basically does do refeeds help retain fat free mass and or do they help us lose more fat and there's a little bit of rationale there for um for helping retain fat free mass right so fat free mass is, is muscle um, and a lot of other things but if you if you have refeeds maybe you train better and you can retain muscle because you're training better or Maybe they increase your metabolic rate a little bit um, and kind of offset that metabolic adaptation that we see with dieting. And it's only like 10, 15% max. Um, but there are a lot of different things. Maybe it's mental, right? Psychological effect. You're like, oh, I made it to the weekend. I get to have an extra, you know, 500 calories or something. So the, the rationale is definitely good. Um, when you get into this study, I think there are some caveats and I, I have to, I'm going to hedge a little bit. Um, but the authors basically said, you know, we found that, that we preserved more fat free mass and metabolic rate was better. And they did resting metabolic rate, which is where you lay on a table in most places and you just have like a mask over your face. Um, and it's not too bad. It takes like 15, 30 minutes and that's plenty of data to kind of get what you need. Um, so they did um, body comp and resting metabolic rate at pre and post, so baseline and then after the end of the study. Um, and they found or reported, you know, fat free mass was retained after an adjustment for uh, the glycogen effect or the water effect, right? So when we diet, we see an initial weight loss and that is mostly glycogen. And people get really excited about it. I mean, I still get excited about it. Um, where you'll lose like three pounds, you'll be like, yes, it's working. <laughs> and <Right>. then the <laughs> next week, <laughs> it's, um, you're like, oh, I only lost a pound this week. Okay, whatever. Um, but that adjusts for that because glycogen, specifically muscle glycogen, which you have a lot of, you know, 400 grams or so, holds um, four, three to four grams of water per gram of glycogen. 
right? So if you have, we'll call it 400 grams of glycogen in your muscle and you're dieting, maybe you go down to like 100 grams. So some quick math, 300 left, right? And if it each holds four grams of water, that's 1.2 kilos, which is a lot of weight, right? Um, so anyway, back to the results. Uh, I think one of the concerns that I had with the study was they report that they found a fat-free mass difference, but the measurements aren't super clear on when they took them. So you have a refeed, you restore that glycogen. And the way they set the study up was there were um, kind of lighter training weeks, so deload weeks, essentially, in the middle of the study and at the end of the study. So what a, a lot of people on the internet have argued is, um, you know, you refed Saturday, Sunday, and then Tuesday or Wednesday, you came back in for your body count measurement. And because you weren't really training, you didn't lose that glycogen. And so the people who have been dieting, who were glycogen depleted the whole time, um, you get like a little bit of a bump, right? It's kind of like an endurance exercise where you deplete and then you have this huge glycogen load and then you perform really well. Um, bodybuilders use it too for peak week, essentially. Uh, so... That was my, my main issue with that. I don't know how you fix that other than taking an end of the week measurement. So uh, just off the top of my head is, is, you know, instead of doing your outcome measures on Tuesday, Wednesday, you do them on Thursday, Friday, but then your continuous group is probably more depleted than um, an alternate thing you can do. And this is uh, more from a statistical approach. So you can do a lot of cool things with stats. Um, you can adjust for um, water in your analysis. So you could take that and say, you know, a portion of this change is explained by water. And if we adjust for that, is there still a difference? And so they didn't do that. And that's a little more advanced. That's uh, we, because I've been involved with so many clinical trials, I've sat in on a lot of like stats meetings and have done a lot of just more advanced stats that the sports science fields don't have access to or maybe you know never really learned that much about um so if you're ever if you're a scientist and you're listening find a statistician don't worry <laughs> so um with this this critique is this i'm just trying to just interpret it for myself and for the listeners is this basically you're kind of saying if we did equate for that, you don't think there would be a difference of muscle maintenance or I should say lean mass maintenance during this period of time? I'm not sure. And I think if we, if we did adjust, we'd have a better answer because they speculate that, you know, it, 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 it did save fat from us. And I mean, again, the rationale is there. It's just not the best design. Uh, and when you're, you know, when you're designing studies, every time I design a study, I'm like, okay, well, I have to change some things and I really want to know about, you know, if my primary outcome or my main, the main reason I did the study is fat-free mass. Well, I need to make sure that however I'm getting that number is the cleanest way I can do it. Because when I go and submit the paper and I go through review, if my like, primary thing I'm looking at is not set up well, you know, it might not get published um, or it might get torn apart afterwards. So that's, that's kind of how scientists generally approach things. But, you know, I, it's, it's hard to tell 
without their data. And actually, uh, they did upload their raw data. So I'm going to play with that a little bit, uh, which is kind of nice. I don't know if you saw that or not. I haven't yet, no. Um, so, so with that being said, is there any argument to say like, okay, let's, let's say it was just water, um, but if muscle is primarily made up of glycogen water and we want to keep more glycogen water and we think of like 24 plus weeks of dieting um, or just let's say they're even just maintaining, but they're using that as a strategy to keep flexibility in check. Mm -hmm. um, do you think it still has value because of that? Because obviously if we do have more water stored in the glycogen inside the muscle, we are still fuller, we look bigger and we feel better in the gym. So is it one of those things where it's like, it's not really what's going on, but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day we get what we want. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of research has that effect, right? If I can, if my goal is for you to lose weight, if I can get you to lose weight and maybe I, you know, I don't lie to you or anything, but I'm just like, we're going to try this thing because it has these off-target effects. It's kind of like repurposing a drug, right? They do it all the time in science. It's like, oh, we have this drug. It's already FDA approved. We can use it for this other disease. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and I think that there is a large effect. Being someone who's been depleted and refilled and used refeeds. I mean, I've always used refeeds. Yeah. Um, like you, you just feel better, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that goes back to the psychological aspect of it too. Like because um, there's been a lot of arguments, which I'd be curious of your opinion on. Um, uh, lately, there's been some debates about diet breaks, and, and I guess you can kind of categorize refeeds in those two, especially extended refeeds, about them really just being psychological. Like there's actually no physiological difference happening. It's just psychological. But then you got to ask too is like, well, do you think indirectly down the road, there will be physiological changes because the psychological benefits you saw during that refeed? Because if that helps you stick to the diet or stay more adherent or work harder in the gym or do any of those things, those things will contribute to uh, the physiological effects. And I think the problem with a lot of people is they'll hear somebody say, Oh, they don't matter. It's just psychological and they'll, they'll throw it out. But it's like, well, you got to think about the, the chain of events that occur if you keep your psychology healthy. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, we look at the placebo effect, right? Mm -hmm. That's, like we know it's there and it, it, it's very powerful um, and you can use that to your advantage. Even if you, you kind of know about the placebo effect, it still happens. Um, one of the other ideas behind kind of diet breaks and refeeds is this, the, the metabolic adaptation, it kind of stops that from happening. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think specifically with this study or really any other studies that I've come across lately, um, I don't think they work for that at least there's not enough evidence to say that they do yet um, what do you think needs to happen in order to accomplish that um, is it a matter of uh, like hey like two days it just it's just not enough um, but you know if you take a full week that's different or like hey you need to is it better to say like because I even have some clients where I'm like hey we're gonna go for 12 weeks and we're not really going to refeed unless we just need to give you a, a higher carb day for psychological benefit or just to get your pumps back in the gym and then after 12 weeks, whether you're at your fat loss goal or not, we're going to take a maintenance phase and it's going to be four to six weeks. And then we're going to come back to that. Um, do you see any benefit for extended periods where it is at least seven days, but upwards of multiple weeks? Do you think that would have that carryover? I think if you have the time to do that, yeah. Um, you know, it's a lot of people that I've worked with, um, they need a little variation anyway. So if they're willing to give you the time and say, hey, yeah, I'll do a 12-week diet. We'll know we'll take a month off. 
um, you go with it. You're like, yes, let's do it. And then they feel better. And, you know, I think to see the metabolic effects, you would need to take a while off. You basically need to come back down into homeostasis, right? Because your body's fighting this weight loss the whole time. Yeah. And then if you maintain and you're not like super lean, right? You're just kind of like normal lean. Maybe you're 12% body fat or something. You will kind of level off and your body will be like, oh, this is the new normal. I'm healthy. I'm not hungry all the time and I'm training well. Like metabolic rate should stabilize. Um, now the, the studies haven't been done, but I, I think that approach is is also a good one. Yeah, I think like what I've been kind of learning more as of lately, probably within the last year, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, and this is even too far, but it, it's it's much less of a reversal and it's much more of like a dampening like it's like hey like when you do a diet break you're not reversing these metabolic adaptations you're just slowing them down a little bit by taking yourself out of the diet for a few days because when you're not in the diet you're not creating more adaptations but you're not necessarily reversing those adaptations um in these maintenance phases like you're referring to where you actually create homeostasis those actually take weeks weeks and weeks sometimes months depending on how long the diet is um it's why somebody in a competitive nature which is more extreme obviously if they do a prep they're not going to do it like a four week maintenance phase and then jump back into a next prep. It's like, Hey, take a six month period off at least, if not longer, if you want to gain some muscle between seasons. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I had another good point. I kind of lost it. <laughs> Brain's always going. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think those are good approaches and I don't again, want to discourage people from taking refeeds or diet breaks. I think they're great. Um, the science is just kind of in between right now. Do you think it'll be one of those things where in a couple of years, maybe even more, like in let's say three to five years, then we're really going to know because it takes that long for enough studies to come out? Probably. I mean, five, five would probably be safer. Um, but when you look at people using these methods already in the physique literature, like, you're like, no, this, this, it works because people use it. And, and I mean, that's partially too, too, right? We just don't know why it works. Yeah. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> like, I think, I think there's a lot of people that um, if it's not proven by science, they just disregard it. And, and I'm a big believer that being evidence-based means you're using anecdotal experience as well. Um, and we use diet breaks all the time with people and we see it work with people that are getting really, really lean. And then people that are just, I want to lose 20 pounds and just feel good naked. And it's like, cool, you're going to use these too because they're going to make the process easier. So. Yeah. The other thing that, that that's nice about them is, Sometimes you don't know how much of a deficit you're in until you come out of it. Mm. Um, so I had a, a client not too long ago. It's like we were dieting, I don't know, like 2,000 calories for 10 or 11 weeks. And I started to back him out of, of his deficit. And I had to push his calories up to like 2,600 before he started gaining weight. And I'm like, I don't, like how deep were we? Yeah. Um, and so like a month in, he's eating 2,600 calories and then is that maintenance. Um, so it's hard to tell, you know. I think one thing I, I try to tell people too is that maintenance is a moving target. It's not necessarily like a set point because there's, and this is why I think like when people see this study and other studies, they have to look at how big of the deficit they're creating. Because 25% and then I think it was 35% for the people doing the refeeds. It's yeah. pretty big. You know, that's a big chunk of your calories out. Um, I have a guy who... I two guys who started to cut this week, but they've been gain they've been gaining for like six months, and another guy's like nine months into his gaining phase. 
So we had a lot of calories to pull. So we did pull 25%, but I mean, he was, they were eating a lot of food, so I could do that. But in some cases you're pulling 10% calories, you know, it's not that much. So these diet breaks might not be as applicable as often because of that. Um, but it also lets you know too, like if somebody, cause I've seen people there, okay, I'm at quote unquote maintenance and I'm going to pull 5% of calories. Cause I want to have like the minimal effect of those. Nothing happens. 5% more, nothing happens. 5% more, nothing happens. And they kind of just inch down until they hit that like at least 15, but if not like 20 to 25% deficit and they finally start losing weight. And I'm like, Hey, you just prolonged like eating less for no reason for six weeks, just jump in the water, like stop dipping your toes in, you know, rip the bandaid off. So I'm a kind of a big fan of, of taking a more aggressive approach out the gates and just giving more diet breaks for the mental effect of just like giving them a break literally. But I think it's more effective because of that. Um, just because of that, that range, I don't think people realize how big that maintenance range actually can be for some individuals. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're, you're training over time, right? So you're hopefully putting on muscle. So your, your rate is increasing a little bit, you know, a lot, not a lot, but you get better at dieting, you get better at managing your hunger, you know, hormonal fluctuations, things like that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm also a bit more aggressive up front. Cause I'm like, nah, you get, you drop three or four pounds and you feel good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's use that. And then on the yeah. back end, use our refeeds to feel good later. In a different yeah. Way. Yeah. hundred percent agree. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else on that study before we move on to the next one that you want to kind of recap or just like kind of give us your conclusion on it of what's applicable? Um, so I think, well, we'll leave a couple things in the blog so people go, can go read it. Um, Cause there's, there's quite a bit of detail. But, you know, my interpretation is there probably weren't any fat-free mass changes between groups if you kind of, if you designed it a little bit differently, um, which means that it doesn't really spare muscle, but they lost the same amount of fat. And I wish, I really wish they would have done some psychological outcomes, like just a survey, like, how are you feeling today? Yeah. <laughs> type thing. Um, and, and that may have helped us a lot, but you know, ultimately the, the outcomes were kind of the same in my interpretation. So it's like, use them. They're not going to be worse, but they're probably not going to be better. Either. It's basically a preference thing then, right? Like as a coach for us, it's always I actually sometimes ask the client, like, Hey, what do you think you'd be able to adhere better to five days in mm-hmm. deficit, two days refeed? Do you want to diet for two weeks? Take a full week off? Like what are the, which one of these sounds better? Because if you can get that buy-in, at the end of the day, they're in a deficit. They're going to lose the weight. You know, I think that's, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so, I'm with you. If buy-in cool. is huge for people. Um, yeah. Sometimes I feel, I don't know if you ever feel this way, but sometimes I feel bad because I like ask them and then I do what they say. And I'm like, ah, man, you know, as a coach, I just gave in to what you asked for. Yeah. To, do you value me less now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's actually, that's actually a conversation I've had with uh, multiple coaches, including coaches on the steam. And I think, I think there's definitely a, a, an art to it of like keeping your authority in place to make sure that um, all the decisions are my decisions, but which of my decisions do you like best kind of thing? Um, because I do know what you mean, exactly what you mean. Um, and it's, it's a fine line because you need that buy-in and that, that trust and, and kind of that authority essentially for them to really like follow through with it but you also need their adherence, which means if, if they, if you don't ask them and you give them the protocol that they know they won't adhere to, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot too. So it's definitely a battle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that pretty much wraps up that, that first study. So we can move on to the next one if you're cool. good. 
Yeah. Um, the only question I have for you is your background on your screen right now. Oh man, that's Dr. Strange. I was going to ask if it was Harry Potter at first. Cause I was like, what wow. is it? Cause I haven't seen Dr. Strange, but I was like, I know that's not his normal sure. office. No. <laughs> no, I'm um yeah, I'm working from lab and my lab is a hot mess right now. So I think okay. that's spare the viewers. How um, do you, how did you do that? Not on Zoom? Zoom. Yeah. It's a Zoom setting. I've got, oh. I'm such a nerd. I have all of the Marvel backgrounds, like, the Tony Stark one. And oh, that's hilarious. Thor one, yeah. And then, um, oh, that's good to know. I, I did not know that. I might start playing around with that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's fun. Um, okay, so the next study is a little, it's a supplement study. And so I, I picked this one. It's basically they, they gave branched-chain amino acids, so BCAAs, to endurance runners during an acute test, so a, a kind of one-time point test. Um, and they gave them 20 grams of BCA. So we're not talking like your normal extend, salivation, three grams to make your water taste good. We're talking a mega dose of uh, branched-chain amino acids. And so they gave them these BCAAs. They let them sit for an hour, probably so they didn't get cramps. <laughs> Um, and then they gave them a basically VO2 max test. And so that's just, we're going to run as long as you can, and we're going to increase the time or increase the pace over time until you hit the red button, which is like, I'm out, I'm done. And usually at that point, people kind of just kind of fall into the corner or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not pleasant. I've done quite a few of them. They had, um, the BCA and the placebo, and then they had a washout period, so a two-week washout, and then they switch groups. This is called a crossover stu uh, study, and this is nice. The crossover studies because you're basically your own control, and so you do the test twice, but you split your people so that you can see in a kind of an effect within the person. Um, and basically, what they found was that the time to exhaustion. So the time before they got too tired and hit the button was higher in the BCAA group. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like three, almost four minutes higher. And so these guys were running, um, so it's 16 male, um, I think military style athletes or um, combat athletes who had a pretty good VO2 max. Like they're fairly well trained. They, these guys could actually run. They were long distance runners, but they could run faster or with more capacity than I can. And I mean, I'm no runner, but still, you know, very fit. Um, so yeah, so they found out they could run farther when they took BCAA and they think that um, the blood markers show they could do it because they were less fatigued. Um, and the rationale behind that is BCAAs can be broken down in the muscle, right? So you break them down in the muscle. They can also be uptaken or uptook by the brain, but they compete with um, something that causes fatigue, which is serotonin. So you have these, you know, you have circulating BCAAs, right? Binding receptors, um, and then you have serotonin. So it's, and this dose is so large that it, I don't know that it outcompeted it, but it kind of reduced the increase in fatigue that you would see. Um, and because of that, I think, they had um, higher levels of 
creatine kinase, which are markers of muscle damage. So to give you an example of creatine kinase, um, imagine it's your first day in the gym, right? You walk in, you work out really hard, you're sore, your creatine kinase levels will be through the roof, right? People who get rhabdo have creatine kinase levels through the roof. Um, it's an indicator of muscle damage. So their, their muscle damage was elevated in the BCA group because probably they ran farther and harder because the test is getting harder over time. Um, and when I looked at, kind of looked at their data, looked at the literature a little bit, um, everything kind of lined up to where the only odd thing that I found was the dose, right? So if you're an endurance athlete, it seems like it would be worth consuming some BCAA as long as they don't give you gastrointestinal issues um, before a long race. Just, just a cute like, bam, about to race in an hour, let me hit some BCAA and then go run. Um, so that was the gist of it. I don't know if you have any like specific questions you wanna get into. Yeah, a few. Um, I've heard in the past that BCAs have a, uh, almost like a, a mental, fatiguing benefit, like where it just helps the mental fatigue side of things. Um, so the question is, do you need to go as far as 20 grams to get that? And then the other side of that is, can we use that in the context of a different athletic endeavor? So if it is, you know, bodybuilding, even for me, like sometimes, like yesterday was my leg day and I had heavy squats and then heavy RDLs and then like sets of 15 per side walking lunges. Like I just, I'm like, dude, I don't want to do this after heavy squats. <laughs> but my thought is like, well, BCAs help me mentally get through those damn lunges at the end of every single leg day. Um, so, but does that make sense? Or like, for example, a CrossFit athlete, they're not necessarily um, doing endurance running, but I mean, if you're doing competitive CrossFit and there are some listeners who do, I mean, you're going pretty hard in, in multiple energy systems throughout a, a typical wad. Um, so is there application for that mental side effect in other realms and what, dosage do you actually need to start experiencing that do you think yeah so the um the, the literature is mostly in endurance athletes but there is plenty of resistance training stuff that finds reduced muscle soreness um and i would you know i think i, I can extrapolate a little bit and say it would probably have the same effect in um kind of any other sport like crossfit or just training in general um, and the dose would probably be somewhere between 12 and 15 grams based on what I've read. Um, now you might be able to get away with lower, but I don't, I don't know it because again, that's a lot to put in a drink. Um, but it's, it's not gonna, again, it's not gonna hurt you necessarily. Like it's not gonna take away from your, your training or, you know, have any real influences on how you adapt in terms of muscle protein synthesis or anything like that, but it does appear to reduce soreness and kind of make that fatigue a little bit better. So, I mean, I don't see any issue with having 12-ish, 12, 12-15 grams in a workout, maybe, since they're longer. Um, yeah. These guys, most of the studies do it beforehand. Right. Um, but then you could like put it in your pre-workout, right? So you have a cocktail of BCAA, caffeine, yeah else you want to be um so yeah i mean i think there's an application there 
20 grams is like four scoops of a normal BCA, uh-huh. I think. It's <laughs> and a lot. It reminds me of when I used to carry around a water jug full of BCA. So I had like a pink water jug because if I was sipping amino acids all day, my muscle protein synthesis would be through the roof and I'd be constantly gaining muscle. Like that was my, my theory when I was 19 years old and I was like, this is what I got to do. Um, and a lot of people did that. I'm sure, I mean, you nod your head, so I wouldn't doubt if you did too. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and it's, um, I think from the muscle protein synthesis side, I was reading a bunch of studies not too long ago and analyzing those, um, you know, we want to stick with whey. So like if you, had this in your workout you would still want to have some kind of meal or shake or something within an hour or two of your your like in your workout or before like you need to overlap your protein still um but you know i if, if you like it <laughs> yeah do you, i guess <laughs> so my next question with this would be did they track how much protein was being consumed by these individuals prior? Uh, because if, if whey protein, which I'm assuming is because it has a full spectrum of aminos, um, is probably going to be better for muscle growth, will the fact that that has BCAs in it as well naturally, can we just have protein before our workout and just make sure that our pre-workout meal is sufficient enough? And that's going to give us that mental uh, fatigue benefit as well as the muscle protein synthesis that we need from whey. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't think so because the BCAs are so specifically a competitive inhibitor to serotonin, mm-hmm. right? So you would need to take in like, uh, like hundred grams away to get to get the, that many yeah. aminos. Ah, you, okay. Yeah. So and then you would probably be miserable. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that would um, be fun. So they didn't. I don't think. At least I didn't see it. Measure protein intake, um, like the standard protein intake. I, I go back and forth. I'm like, all right, well, it would be nice if they a study did that. And they're like, yeah, you know, we had our standard 1.8 grams per kilogram or something, you know, high-ish. And we gave them the BCA and it still worked. Like that's, I think that is the next step. Um, and actually, you, you did have a, a good idea with the serotonin and the crossfitters. That would be interesting to do too. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, what's your, what's your conclusion of, of should we spend our money on BCAs or not? Because this is definitely one of those ones that was like, they're great. And then it was like, they're so pointless. Don't waste your money. And then it was like, no, you should drink them before meals or in between meals. And then the next one was, or it was just leucine, I guess at that point. And then it was back to being like, if you hit your protein intake, they're absolutely pointless. And then, you know what I mean? It keeps going back and forth. So like, what, where do you think there's actually application? Um, for individuals listening. Yeah, so I I would probably say save your money and spend it on something else. Um, unless you just really like it or really want that like one to two percent edge. Um, like I, I'm I don't do it if that gives you an example. And I'm not like a big supplement person. I I take creatine um, sometimes vitamin D if it's not sunny. <laughs> um, I do energy drinks occasionally. Um, so yeah, I mean, I keep it pretty simple, but there's plenty of stuff that you can use. I, I think this would fall somewhere in the middle, probably. Got it. I think that's a good uh, recommendation. I typically tell people the same thing. It's like, if you enjoy it, do it. If you have the money to spend and you want that like 
potential 1% edge, like that's great. Um, but I always say too, like, if you don't have any whey protein at home, if you don't have any creatine monohydrate, like if you're not drinking caffeine before your workouts, like start there because that's going to do much more for you. Um, which actually brings up another uh, question I have uh, just because I read it in mass and then I asked uh, Eric Treckler's uh, opinion on it and, and he is a fan. Uh, betaine, what is your thoughts on betaine? And if that's, um, I guess like for the listeners, what it is, what it does. Um, and if you see any validity in that, because the research review in mass was actually pretty good on it. Like they showed some, some body composition changes that were favorable from supplementing with it. Okay. So you, you picked one supplement that I'm not super familiar with. I, I know <laughs> you picked the one I was waiting for beta alanine or like beetroot juice. And then I was like, wait, no. Okay. Um, so I'm probably not up to date on that to give a good kind of response, but you know what? It can go on my list and I can read a study and I can, figure it out love it yeah because that's one i've been getting asked about quite a bit um and and from my research on it it seems favorable but i don't know why it's kind of like what i got out of it It it's like okay this this seems pretty legit but why and why why isn't if it's legit why isn't everybody taking this because we'd all look better you know Um, but for me i'm always very very cautious with supplements i'm the guy that's like Eh, I need more, I need more, I need more. Like creatine monohydrate has so much information out that finally I was like, okay, like this is like absolutely great. Um, but I will say like, I really respect Eric Trexler. Obviously I pay him to do my training and nutrition stuff and, and he even suggested it. And, and so that's when I was like, okay, let me really like one, look into this to ask Brandon because I think it's worth getting some more context on. So we'll save that for the next one. Yeah. Yeah. I actually put it on my list. I have my, so each month, I kind of have different places where I go to look for a list of studies to, to kind of, so we can talk about them. Um, and so the first research review is, is pretty much capped off. But I have my second one for next month kind of prepping. And so there's a couple of studies in there and I'll, I'll put a, a retained study in there for us. But the, um, the other one that I saw, I don't know if you saw this one, is the, there's a new weight vest study basically. With James so, Krieger? No, so this is actually like a, a clinical trial. Oh, like an actual they, study, because his yeah, was yeah, just yeah. anecdotal, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I used it. I still use it um, occasionally to to rock. Um, but yeah, so that's one of the ones we're probably gonna do next time. Yeah, and we'll we'll do maybe we'll stick with like nutrition, training, and supplements type. Thing. Yeah, I think that would be good. I, I I'm really interested in the in the weighted apparel weight vest like one because. Um, when James came out with the content around his client case study and what they did and what his, his thoughts were as to why those things were occurring was really, really interesting. I mean, granted there's, there's only so much application, like obviously most people can't wear weighted apparel all day. Um, but I could, (laughs) so like part of me is like, you know, I kind of want to learn more and and when it gets time for me to cut, like maybe I'll throw some uh, weighted apparel on and try it out yeah yeah they, they make some pretty cool vests now too that's the other thing it's like and no longer does it look kind of ridiculous it's kind of like oh it's kind of trendy it's kind of like the, the face i don't know if you, do you have a face mask yet like uh, no i don't custom? not no. not like a legit one. Oh man so i have a couple different ones and it's just like it's like a fashion thing now yeah it's like, it's like all right if i gotta wear one it'll look pretty yeah exactly <laughs> um Okay, so I guess that leaves us with the last study. Yeah. Yeah. So this one is so I pick um, clinical trials mostly because they're just kind of the best 
Evans, so RCPs, yeah. randomized controlled trials. Uh, so this one get, basically was looking at a dose response of exercise. So exercise in this study was walking. It's like mediocre cardio is what I'd call it. Uh, so the heart rate range was in like the 70 to 75%. So you're, you're like working, but you're not like that. Um, and they looked at basically three doses and it was kind of a, an observational. So they just had a control group basically. Uh, they had a moderate group and then they had a high activity group. And I wanna say the moderate group exercised for like two and a half hours per week, split up over four or five sessions. Um, and the high group, exercise for I think it was four to four and a half hours per week again for over four or five sessions so you're basically doing an hour of cardio a day in the high group and they wanted to know do we compensate right does our total energy expenditure go down or up when we do this differential exercise dose and what they found basically was it does um, exercise has an effect where your energy, energy expenditure go, goes up for exercise, right? But the, um, the total component, when you account for how much you're eating and how much you're moving outside of that, seems to not be as big at the high level. So that kind of translates to, okay, well, if I wanna lose weight um, or just maintain weight and I need to make a change, I can't just keep increasing cardio forever, right? So that's kind of the, the take home from this study. Um, but it was very well, like it had good design. Um, it had males and females, and there was actually a difference um, in females. They compensated their energy intake more than males. So like males adapted. They're like, oh no, I'm moving more. I need to eat more type thing. Whereas females were like, I'm moving more and I'm gonna eat less. Um, so that was kind of interesting. But when we go to apply this to um, ourselves or clients, I think this is just another study that supports we need to be aware of movement and activity and nutrition outside of what we're doing for exercise specifically, because it does have an effect. Right. I think that, you know, cardio has always been one of those things that people rely on because they can see a, I burn this many calories. So they think, because we know it's not completely accurate anyway, but point being is they kind of lean on that. Whereas there's a lot of people, myself included, and it sounds like you as well, um, who, who would rather train to maintain muscle and diet to lose fat. Would that be an accurate statement? And is this study kind of just giving us the proof of that? Yeah. And it was a, it was like a, like a seven month study. Damn. And, and yeah, so it's, it's very long, but they had the calories they burned. So they, they did have to do that calorie counting thing where you're like looking at, you're like, all right, I got to get to, you know, a thousand calories this week and I got five sessions. To yeah. Do it. Um, so they accounted for body weight. So if you weighed more, you had to do more, um, which makes it even harder if you think about people who are heavier. Um, and these people weren't like exercising normally. These are just like, I pulled in, you know, 50 middle young middle-aged people off the street and they don't exercise um, their nutrition is meh like normal uh, and we're going to put them into this study and 
I mean, you know, we we don't work with people who who don't like they they do things correctly. But when you work with a general population, like this is what you see sometimes. And you're like, oh wow, well, you don't do any of the stuff that like kind of athletes do. So yeah. we have to start from here. And so there is some kind of caveats to you know, applying it to our people, our athletes, our our clients. Um, but it was it was an interesting study. Is was there any recorded adaptation along the way? Just as far as and if if there wasn't, I'd I'd love your thoughts on this of just like as you do cardio, you become more adapted to that process and maybe burn less calories as your body kind of gets better at cardio. It's almost like you don't want to get good at cardio because you'll be more efficient. Is that, is that, is that an accurate statement? Yeah. So that is a, that's a definite a thing that occurs. Um, it's not huge. I want to say it's 10, less than 15%, maybe 10%. Um, but you do have mechanical efficiency where if you do a lot of cardio, say walking, or actually let's not say walking, everybody walks. Let's say uh, elliptical, right? Everybody loves to get on elliptical for a little bit. Um, if you made the elliptical your only cardio, you would mechanically adapt, you'd get more efficient, your muscles would get more efficient at the movements, your just body in general would, and you would lose some of that um, benefit, right? So you would, like you said, adapt. Um, but not too much. So that kind of makes a rationale for mixing up your cardio a little bit. It's actually something I've always done because I had that thought process. I know there's no studies of like, okay, this group is going to do just elliptical and this group is going to do incline walking elliptical and the stationary bike, unfortunately. Um, but it, it makes sense in theory. And I think just from a boredom standpoint, it can help mm -hmm. people as well. Um, but I think that's also one of the, the pros of strength training because progressive overload is much easier to accomplish inside of resistance training than it is inside of cardio because with cardio, it's basically like do more, do more, do more yeah. <laughs> with training. It is do more, but there's so many ways and variations to do more just slightly that it's easier to, um, try to adapt. And I think that's kind of the process of building muscle or maintaining muscle, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I, I use, let's see. So we do, do dog walks with sometimes a little bit way to best. Um, I, we just got not a Peloton, but a, it's another brand. It's like not quite as expensive as Peloton uh, bike, but I've used those in the past with prep and just cardio in general. Um, and then I used to swim a lot, but I haven't swam in a long time. Yeah, for me, it's always just, man, it's, it's, I, I usually do like a day or two of conditioning when I'm cutting just because I enjoy, I mean, I have turf here. So it's like, get the sled out. Let's do some circuits of like strongman stuff, like carries and sled. Like I just have fun with that. But yeah. usually for my cardio, when I'm cutting, it's like, I'm going on a daily walk, like, and it's usually like, okay, like now I'm going to add a second daily walk and they're like shorter, but it's just neat, you know, and the diet's usually the thing controlling it. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's applicable. Um, what, what's your, like, how do you explain to people why strength training is more beneficial for fat loss? Cause that's always a hard question to answer because well, cardio burns more calories and you're like, Oh, in the session. Yeah, it does. Like, wh what do you tell people when they ask you that? That's a question we get really commonly. Um, okay. So I try to get people to back out a little bit and say, yes, you can probably lose as much or more weight doing cardio than if you just trained like with weights. 
However, what you really want to do is you want to hold on to that muscle that you have because you're going to look better, right? And so you want to drop fat, but if you just do cardio, you're going to lose a larger portion of your weight from muscle than if you did even a little bit of strength training. You know, like two days a week is better than nothing. Um, so that's generally how I try to convince people. Um, and then also, right, so if you have a, an afterburn effect with muscle where like an exercise session may, um, may burn like 250 calories, maybe 300 as far as opposed to like a 500 kick out cardio session. Uh, and they could be the same length uh, of time. But then you're, you know, you're adapting, you're growing, that takes energy, you're repairing, that takes energy. Um, and it's a lot more strenuous too. So I, that's the that's the rationale I try to take with the people. I think that it's makes sense. Like, yeah. It's like, yeah, you want to lose fat, you don't want to lose weight. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's what it is, right? Teaching people weight loss and fat loss being different, you know, like, mm -hmm. and, and I try to use fat loss as a, as actually like how I describe it way more, even when I'm not talking to somebody about this. Cause I, cause I think weight loss, um, can get misconstrued that way and people will take it too far with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, when you're tracking body weight daily and like, you don't really have a good way to measure body comp, um, like it can be hard in your head to be like, no, no, I'm doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, great, man. This was, this was awesome. We're going to, uh, we're going to cap it right here. Um, as always, thank you for your time, man. I love doing these stuff. Cause it's like, selfishly, it's just fun for me. Um, but I think the listeners are going to love this too. And for everybody listening, um, Brandon has been writing blogs for the website. So we already have a couple out. Um, I will link his blogs in the show notes. I will link his Instagram, which he puts out a ton of content and information on there um, as well as the last podcast we did. And then be on the lookout for his uh, research around a blog that will come out and it's everything we talked about today, but in writing. So you can kind of see diagram grams and graphs and in text and actual application um, mm -hmm. really, really in depth. It's really long. So it's, it's going to be good for people <laughs> to use as like a resource after this. Um, but yeah, man, it's awesome. Do you have anything else for the listeners? No, no. Yeah, just always, you can reach out to me if you got any questions, be email, DM, whatever. Um, and I appreciate, you know, you having me on and us doing this. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely, man. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more again to get you better results. The second thing, Head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the nutrition hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. 
All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here, and I'll see you next time.